Hey friends, welcome back to the Journal Feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to get spoon-fed the latest and, of course, the greatest of emergency medicine. Now, if you are hearing this right now, then you are not currently a Journal Feed subscriber, and so will not be receiving the full Journal Feed podcast, only getting a portion of the past week's articles. Don't worry, all good articles. But if you would like to get full access to both the podcast and the blog, then you'll have to become a member. All the details for that are at journalfeed.org, and remember, we never want money to be a barrier to better patient care. So if you're having any trouble affording a subscription, just get in touch. We'll help you out. Now, this week, this is the audio version of the past week summaries, which this week were brought to you by our own authors, Michael Stoker, Amanda Matthews, Rebecca White, Caitlin Nicholson, Andy Hogan, and of course, Clay Smith. So let's get into the first article titled The Impact of Dual Sequential Shock Timing on Outcomes During Refractory Out-of-Hospital Cardiac Arrest out of the journal Resuscitation. Dual sequential external defibrillation. We are really going to have to shorten that. D-S-E-D, that's not very catchy. D-SED, Dooley's, Double D-Fib, Zap Zap Fiesta, The Electrical Twosome, Spark Spark Jive. We have a lot of options here, guys. We have a chance to name it something cool. I'm open to suggestions. Anyways, what was I saying? Oh, right. Now that the double buzz has some supporting evidence and has gained a lot of popularity, well, we have to perfect it. This group wanted to know just how far apart those two shocks should be. This was a retrospective study having a look at 106 OCA patients who had refractory VF and received the double zing zing. Refractory VF in this study was ventricular fibrillation at the fourth rhythm check after three normal shocks and ongoing CPR. Each zip-zap was analyzed individually for a total of 303 events so that we could see the relationship between the timing between shocks and outcomes. They classified all of them into four groups for the purpose of this analysis. They were shocks less than 75 milliseconds apart, 75 to 125, 125 to 500, or more than 500 milliseconds apart. Most shocks were delivered more than 500 milliseconds apart, which I'll remind you is just half a second. But the only 25 events that happened less than 75 milliseconds apart, these shocks had a higher chance of terminating ventricular fibrillation and obtaining ROSC. No interval was associated with higher rates of survival or survival with good neurological outcomes, unfortunately. But this study certainly was not powered for that sort of outcome. Now, while this isn't strong enough evidence to change your practice necessarily, especially with most people trying to work both devices on their own at the same time, and no one has the precision to purposely time things that precisely, it's still important that we do studies like this. Before long, defibrillators are definitely going to be designed to deliver both shocks by themselves from a single machine. I have no doubt about that. And then we'll have to program how far apart we want our shocks. As things stand, 75 milliseconds is pretty much simultaneous as far as my mortal reflexes are concerned. Anyways, well done to the authors. I'm glad that they did this, even though it was just a retrospective trial, blah, 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 limitations, you know the deal. In a spoonful, very short intervals between shocks during a dual jolt jamboree, better known as a dual sequential external defibrillation, was associated with higher rates of VFib termination and ROSC. Then we have the second article titled, Doing More With Less. 
Low titer group O whole blood resulted in less total transfusions and an independent association with survival in adults with severe traumatic hemorrhage out of the journal of thrombosis and hemostasis. An eye for an eye, an even trade. It's a common concept, and when you've lost something, it needs to be repaid in equal value, or else you're just at a loss. You agree? I mean, I think it seems reasonable, and yet we don't necessarily apply this practice to whole blood transfusions necessarily. What's up with that? Sure, we try to give one-to-one-to-one, but often that's not accomplished, and even then, things are a little bit left out. It's pretty good, but it's not blood. It's not whole blood, and whole blood is what we've lost. You know, this got me thinking about athletes, and they blood dope. As far as I can tell, they don't use whole blood, though. Unfortunately, they use component blood, since really all they really care about is increasing their oxygen-carrying capacity, and that can be done with just red blood cells. Anyways, all to say that there's some interest in replacing whole blood with whole blood, and this concept has been around for a long time. Let's have a study taking a look at this practice. This was a single-center, prospective, observational study that also used a little bit of retrospective data collection. They looked at adult patients who underwent massive hemorrhage protocol activation due to trauma. 348 patients were included, 180 of which received the familiar one-to-one-to-one component transfusion strategy, and the remaining 168 received low-titer group O whole blood, all to the primary outcome of 24-hour mortality, which they found to be improved by 11% in the whole blood group. That was 8% versus 19%, which was significant. That's at only 24 hours, though. This benefit did not last up to 28 days. Oddly. Shame. Because the majority of trauma deaths are in those critical first few hours to days. Still, patients receiving whole blood received 40% less total blood products by weight over the first three days of admission. That's about 30 milliliters per kg less, which is a whole resuscitation's worth. And that's of blood products, too, so this stuff is precious. This sign of improving short-term mortality was also seen in patients with a tendency to bleed, those with high PTTs or a maximum clot firmness less than 60 by Rotem. These patients might have actually had particular benefit despite their lower ability to clot at baseline. Now, while the mortality benefit overall wasn't robust enough to last out to 28 days, simply using 40% less blood products is a significant motivation to adopt whole blood as a practice. There are national shortages of blood as it is. This could actually make a big difference if it's true. I'd hope to see more trials. In a spoonful, this study was just observational, but it showed an improvement in short-term mortality with trauma patients resuscitated with whole blood rather than blood components. This was also associated with less blood product use. I wonder how this would hold up in other centers. And that's it. That's all the articles from this week. Let's do a quick wrap-up. From the first article, if you're the fellow in charge of pressing the button to deliver double shocks, try to press them less than 75 milliseconds apart for theoretically optimal results. From the second article, whole blood saves a whole lot of lives at 24 hours, but this benefit did not last out to 28 days. Again, if you are hearing this right now, then you are not part of the members feed and you missed three articles from this past week. One was about if you're transfusing whole blood, how much component blood can you still give to get all the benefits of whole blood therapy? Then from another article, we saw which infants are more likely to have positive chest x-rays. And then finally, we caught up with what's the latest on how well inflammatory markers work on infants who are COVID positive. 
Links to all the articles summarized can be found at journalfeed.org, where the newsletter is the best way to make the podcast into a little bite-sized nugget of space repetition. Our goal here is for you to read less, learn more, and save lives, one spoonful at a time. Thank you.